This is Continuing the Conversation, a podcast series brought to you by the Surface Navy Association. This is Paul Wren. I'm here with Captain Donna Looney. Good morning. Surface Warfare Officer, retired, and a woman who has had a very unique and uh, successful career in the United States Navy, and a few years ago retired, much to the loss of the service in the country. And Donna has great experience across all spectrums of the United States Navy. And so today, I'd like to start off by asking her, how do you think the Navy, from your vantage point, has evolved from the time you joined it to the time you left and with regard to opportunities and chances for women in the Navy? Uh, Since the time I joined? Well, it's been a huge sea change, for lack of a better word. I came in the Navy in 1973 under ZGRAM 116. And what's that? Admiral Zumwalt, seeing the writing on the wall, at that time it was actually the uh, Equal Rights Amendment, knew that he had to broaden opportunities for women. He opened every enlisted rating to women, regardless of whether you could go to sea or not, which we couldn't at the time because it was against the law. So when he opened all those ratings open to women, I joined the Navy as a quartermaster As I continued in the Navy, so the Navy changed. First allowing women onto submarine tenders and destroyer tenders, then combat logistics ships, then the law changed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I've seen the Navy change from the very beginning to where we had no women at sea to what we have now. Okay. So a very, very distinctive. When you came in the Navy, why did you decide to go into the surface warfare community? I know you went in to be a quartermaster. Well, when I, when I came in as enlisted, I specifically wanted to be a quartermaster because I specifically wanted to go to sea. Now, I couldn't at that time, uh, but when you're 18, you kind of think that perhaps something may change. Um, I wanted to learn a skill, and I wanted to be a navigator, and I wanted to go to sea. Uh-huh. So that's what I did. Um, as an enlisted person, we couldn't go to sea, but I was stationed at the Third Fleet Command Center as a real QMOW, so I worked within my rate, um, as opposed to a number of women who came in under that couldn't necessarily work within their rate, clearly, because they couldn't go to sea. For example, we had women who were missile techs, or we had women who were torpedo men. There wasn't a rate that was not open to women. Um, so consequently, after I got off of active service and stayed in the res- stayed in the active reserve, I went to college, went to Boston University. Um, the Navy began was continuing to change as I was in school, and I watched that. And ships were opening tenders um, specifically. So I knew that when I graduated from college that that's what I wanted to do, go back in and be a surface warfare officer and go to sea. Okay. And so talk a little bit about how your career advanced when you went. you came back in. You were a surface warfare officer the type of ships you went to, what you thought your opportunities were, and and talk a little bit about the leadership you had and how, if at all, that has evolved and changed and given you uh, and other women opportunities. Well, my career really expanded as the Navy did. Uh So I started in submarine tenders. The destroyer tenders were open, too. And the Navy opened some of the combat logistics ships, not all of them, what we called the shuttle ships. And I went on to do um, an ammunition ship. Then the Navy opened up the larger combat logistics ships, 
the station ships, if you will, which were technically still against the law since they were integral parts of the battle group. But uh, we opened those, so I went on to those. And then as the combatant ships opened, by that time I was really at a transition. Should I stay in combat logistics, which, which was my skill set at that time, or go on to either an amphibious ship or a combatant ship? I chose to stay in combat logistics for my command tour, just my own philosophy of what a commanding officer should be, and then went on to amphibious ships. Um, so the leadership, how that changed, well, you know, the same as the Navy evolved, so leadership had to evolve through that. In the very beginning, when you were on the tenders, the men, and then it was all men at that time, of course, women didn't have a command opportunity even at that time. Um, you know, it was a little hard for them to make that adjustment to having women in their wardroom now. Um, so I wouldn't say that there, I would say that there was not a lot of mentorship. You know, you found the ones that could be good mentors. They weren't necessarily uh, your department heads or your COs or XOs. But as women expanded onto ships, so leadership became much more astute and, and, and understood, A, the challenge, and B, this fantastic opportunity to have these brilliant people on board. Mm-hmm. So it grew. Okay. And was there any, any specific time that you that you saw that opportunities had changed or you kind of saw a direction for you. I know you just talked about how you stayed on combat logistics ships right. instead of going to amphibs. What were some of the things that drove you in that direction? Was there, was there a female mentor or was there a male mentor? I mean, one of the questions we always get, do women have male mentors and female mentors or are they just female mentors? I had both male and female mentors. Mm-hmm. It really didn't matter to me. I primarily looked for someone who could provide me guidance in the next thing I wanted to do. So when it came to uh, going to, for example, going to department head school, while I was in department head school, the the smaller combat logistics ships or the shuttle ships opened to women. What, What would I do with that? Would I stay in engineering as I was? Would I go onto an ops field, what would be best for me? So I, I really sought out people who could ask, answer those questions for me and what it meant for me to do this path or that path right. really in the choice I was going to make out of department at school. Right. So the mentorship was there. It wasn't necessarily who was, who was your next senior. It wasn't necessarily somebody even within that chain of command or that school. So I sought them out. Okay. Did, um, when you went to the command level or the executive officer level and then the command level, talk to us a little bit about uh, communications. As a woman, communicating down and also getting communications back. Now, I know it's a difficult question, but, you know, it's, it's an evolution that women today are very interested in. But I think what's important for them to know is what you went through as you came up the, up the ladder Towards uh, towards command. I'm not exactly sure what you mean with regard to communications. For example, as the XO, did I have my communications up and down the chain of command, or my communications outside the lifeline, or? Well, let's say. And let's really, say. I don't think my gender had anything to do with it. Uh-huh. Mostly, it had. I had to learn a new skill set, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, going from 
a department head on a ammunition ship, and now my XO tour was on the AOE, which then had just opened um, to women. Um, so I'm not sure communication. It was a new thing for the AOE now to have uh, women, but I don't think that there was anything that my gender played one way, run a role one way or the other with regard to. Well, I'm not referring to gender. Um, I'm just talking Just regular overall. communication? Well, you know, before before you came in, we were talking to Bosemane, um, Cheryl Shaw, and she was talking about some of the issues that she dealt with being a young, being a young woman in uh, in the deck force, and the vision perhaps that you know what are women right. doing in the deck force. Um, so I'm just curious to see if you what your thought process was when you became an XO. XO is probably one of the most important and toughest tours in the Navy. You know, short of command, you really have to drive things home. And and the communications aspect I'm looking at <clears throat> is I want to know. If you can, if you can talk about that, the communications that came up from the deck blades to you when you're in those positions. Now, if you if you didn't if you didn't observe any any difference from everything else you'd ever done, then that's exactly what I'm interested in hearing. No, I don't think I did. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I had to learn to communicate, as you say, as the XO. Um, that's a whole new job and uh -huh. a very big job. My CO was a aviator. At that time, the AOEs were used as kind of, I don't want to use the word training platform, but more or less, they yeah, would, would go on command. to be, a, sure. it was his yeah. deep draft command. So I really had to be the the lead surface warrior right. on that ship, as well as the executive officer. Um, so I think any communication really through that light mm -hmm. was not, was no more of a challenge than it would have been for on any other ship for any other XO. Got it. I think the difference, though, is that it was a deep draft ship, uh, and much larger, and a unique mission, and the CO is an aviator. So there was those kind of, those particular unique things. Um, and the majority of other officers on the ship were LDO, because that's the nature of the beast, the nature of the beast if yeah. you will. Um, well, good. learning. Um, one of the other things that I wanted to talk to you about was, you know, um, this is an issue throughout the Navy today all the time. Then it's about ownership or being invested in your job. And it's uh, I think it's a major tenant as well as communications with regard to leadership. How much are you how how much do you encourage your people to be invested in their jobs and take ownership of them so that they can. You know, oh, yeah. no, be more more synergistic and whatever. Can you address that at all? Well, I think it's key. I mean, that's a key right. uh, a key part of leadership is having ownership of your job, your workspace, your ship, being vested in it, having a responsibility in its successes, being a part of it, being made to feel a part of it. Right. You know, and those of us who are leaders, that's what we that's you know that was very important to us. Which I'll digress. And one of the reasons I went to the the AO is my command, as opposed to then women could start then in the LS, in the amphibious ships. And some did and did it fantastic. So this was just my philosophy in the world according to me. I felt as the commanding officer, I needed to be the smartest person on that ship. Mm -hmm. Being the CEO of an AO, I was the smartest person on that ship with regard to unrep. 
sure. and other things as well. So I then could devote my time not learning a new craft, but being able to get my people vested in, responsible for, feeling a part of, then I could concentrate on making them the experts because they could come to me for the right. questions and answers right. because I knew them. I'm not saying, aren't I a great person? I knew all that, but I stayed with what was my strongest skill set. Yeah. So I could make them a part of it. Would you, would you advise uh, or would you recommend to women to stay very focused in their, in their skill sets and their career as to an ability to move forward? Is that something that you would recommend? We, absolutely. I mean, you have to decide this is, this is what you want to do right. and where do you want to focus and then stay that course. Um, you have to be the, you have to make a commitment to do the best that you can in that job, no matter what that job is, right. and to make a commitment to it. And you're right, and, and to stay focused to it. Not so focused that you don't see anything else, but focus that you know where your path is going. Right. It's not easy. No, it's not. And I, uh, so I, I want to take this a little bit past your time at sea, but, since, since I, uh, I have great knowledge of that, having worked with you during that time frame. And uh, I want you to talk a little bit about when you, when you get out of the at-sea environment, or for aviators out of the aviation environment, and suddenly you end up on the joint staff in a very mm-hmm. critical mm-hmm. critical job that, and I'll say this and you would never say this, you don't get, you don't get the appreciation or the recognition <laughs> that you probably deserve for all you did. And I think that that's another issue for women who go from positions where they are focused and successful and suddenly end up on a large staff. I mean, men have that same problem, but there are some differences involved. Can you, can you talk about your time on the joint staff? And, and I know the hours you devoted to that and wow. the time you spent there. And, and what was your view of that? And, um, and how did you feel that as a female officer that you stacked up or, or uh, you were acknowledged or recognized in that position? And tell us a little bit about the position. Well, so. Right. I was on the joint staff. I was in the joint operation directorate and PACOM. And it was a huge learning curve because I had not been involved in, in any of the aspect of defense or planning or any of those things at that level ever before. Um, now, the Joint Staff did a great job training us action officers up, but I had to learn a whole new vocabulary of DEP boards and warning orders and all those kinds of things and op boards how the whole thing works. So that was a challenge. I'm not sure that, um, and perhaps had I come up through a crudez environment, perhaps my education, I would have had a different background coming into it. Yeah, sure. But it was a challenge that you take on just like anything else. I was given a, an assignment that I could really sink my teeth into um, and it didn't matter what my background was and that was what, I don't, I, what used to be the GNFPP and really the large, big uh, design of the deployments of the carriers and the, and the amphibious ships, I think, were in there at the time. Um, so it was a learning curve. Yeah. Um, that being said, two months, a month after I got to the joint staff, or maybe two months, was September 11th. So that changed, that really changed all dynamics of, of where you were and who you were and what you were going to do. So, so that was a learning curve that was immediate and absolute and, 
and and you just had to you just went with it sure okay last question Oh, it's been so much fun talking. <laughs> well, I'm going to give you two that. But the last question I have is is something that uh, we're going to talk about when we have the group session, but it's something I'd like you to address because I think it's very important for women and because it's, it is fundamentally different than men who go and have a career in the Navy, and that is uh, life balance. And we talked about this last night a little bit about balancing the things, your career and your profession, Versus, versus your outside social and and um, uh, life outside the the, uh, the navy. Can you talk a little bit about that? As uh, well, probably mostly, what I talk about is not me, but when I talk to young men and young women, I tell them, figure you have to have a balance, no matter how you do that, no matter how you define that. So it really is kind of a, it was something I preached. Why do I do that? Because I really didn't have that kind of a balance. In those early years, when there were so few women surface warriors or so, then then I think we kind of um, devoted ourselves so uh, solely to that career, getting that qual, being that best person, showing them that you could do that. And I'm not speaking for anybody else, just myself, but I, but I would gather that we were all kind of like that because you didn't want it to look as if this was not as important to you as that next guy. Yeah. And if that meant putting off some choices that you would normally make, then that's what that meant. Uh-huh. I would not recommend that now. Now, I think the Navy then has grown culturally to allow both men and women to have a much better work-life balance. But you have to do that, however you define that, however you want to do that. Um, I'm not sure if that answers what you're saying, because I don't think, because I did not, so I'm not a good example of that. Um, I now I am. I think your, I think your <laughs> but, answer is perfect, because I think it addresses that issue. But go ahead. Right, but I mean, in those early years, we didn't talk about that. Right. Um, the, you know, we only had when... when when women first became could go on ships, they were limited to only 17 women a year. So you don't have a big cadre of young women you can talk to in the first place. And we're stretched across the globe in those on on tenders. So we really didn't talk about things like that. You were probably maybe one or two or the third three yeah. women in the wardroom. And I knew them all. And you knew them all. And really <laughs> the the thing you that you so focused on was this opportunity that you've been given and you were and you were just totally focused on that at least for me yeah so I didn't have a good balance in that sense um now I did make that balance for myself as a captain right and decisions that young lieutenants make I made as a captain and feel good about that um so I tell them men and women alike find that balance because if you don't you'll eventually you'll eventually maybe make a choice that you wouldn't have normally made. Okay. That's a very good, it's a very powerful statement. Um, one last thing. Yes. And in, in your vision of, and everybody talks about your vision of the future. I'm not asking about that because those are all crapshoots that don't amount to anything. But, but in your vision of the Navy from where you came from to where you see it today, and, you're, and you connect it with it, and you do see it, 
What, what advice would you give young women, aside from the, the balance, which I think is very important, what advice would you give to women as they pursue a career in the Navy with regard to opportunity, with re- regard to skill set, with regard to um, the opportunity to see all sorts of things that otherwise they may not ever have the opportunity to see? What, what's your feeling about that, uh, your advice would be? Start out committed to being the very best you can possibly be, no matter what that, be that best division officer. Know everything about that division. Know everything about that ship. Work on those quals. Be the smart, be the smartest that you can be. And then move on from there. Then you can make a decision clearly as, where are my interests? Where would I like to go? Mm-hmm. But I just, I think that the, the real core of it has to start in that division, on that ship, knowing that job. Being that man or woman, and, speci- and being that woman who those young people are going to look up to, be that be that woman who is that who has that technical and tactical capability, yeah. and learn it. It's all out there. I don't think we uh, we tend not to take enough advantage of it. I didn't take enough advantage of it mm-hmm. um, in learning it as much as I clearly could. I think that gives you the freedom then to move forward into whatever you are be the very best that you can be okay well and balance it (laughs) (laughs) and balance it Uh, well captain donna looney it's it's been an honor and good to see you thanks very much for coming thank you for having me you're welcome thank you for continuing the conversation with us for more information about this podcast and the surface navy association visit NavySNA.org. If you like this podcast, please give us a five-star rating. Until next time, fair winds and following seas.